Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Was there nothing worth fighting for? Something in our lives worth fighting for. Never in a hundred years do we anticipate anything like this. It, I think it is absolutely marvelous that the public have come forward. Uh, for this cause to and provided this sum of money which is absolutely marvellous. It started uh, with my own view. I've had such magnificent treatment from our National Health Service. I had a broken hip, I had cancer in my skin and the service I got from the doctors and the nurses and all the backup people in that service has been absolutely magnificent. And that was certainly one of the reasons why I thought it would be an excellent thing to raise all this money. When we set up, you hope we would manage to raise a thousand pounds. But look what happened. Why well, I'm absolutely in, in awe when you think all the kindness of the people throughout this country and throughout the world who have given so much money to the fund to help our National Health Service, who we have got to agree is one of the best services that there is in the world. It's difficult because the, the, all the doctors and nurses are doing such a magnificent job under very difficult conditions and every day they're putting themselves in harm way, night and morning, and they're doing it with a determination that only we can do. And then they're continuing to do that. And I think we must all say thank you very much to all of you, everyone throughout the whole system, who are doing such a magnificent job. It's unbelievable though, this sum of money has been raised so quickly by the facilities. For super people, I think that it just shows throughout the country and all our nations, we're so generous in every way that this sort of money has come along, but it's for such 
a super purpose and should continue walking so long as people are generous enough to send some money for the National Health Service. I, I really stand for, for the goodness that uh, we were, were all getting at the moment. Was, and I've always been one for valuing the future. I always think the things will be good. We've done so well, I mean, with our country, we've fought so many battles and we've always won, and this time we're going to win again. So all all you people in the NHS who this morning, probably at at 8 o'clock, there's so much a changeover of duties, and you're all entering to something where you're putting yourselves in danger, and you're doing that for the good of all the people here. You are doing a marvellous, marvellous job. We're all in this together. No one is immune from this uh, invisible uh, army that's being uh, attacking us at the moment. So I think everyone needs to you buckle down just as we had to do in the in the war times. That this is something we all need to do and do it cheerfully because at the end everything will be all turned out all right. I think you've got to think that things will be better, that the future is in front of us all, and that without doubt things will get better and we shall get through this this very difficult time. So please remember that tomorrow is a good day and that we shall all get through it in the end. That was a recording of Captain Sir Tom Moore speaking about his 100th birthday walk for the NHS. I'm Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets, and this is episode 10, the final instalment in our podcast series, Things Worth Fighting For. The reason we made this podcast was because we wanted to use this time to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and shed some light on some of the biggest conversations of today, many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. I'm speaking to you today from Mystery Jet's spiritual home on Eelpie Island, and the theme we're talking about on this final episode of Things Worth Fighting For is our beloved National Health Service in the age of coronavirus. As we draw to the end of 2020, one thing is certain. This is a year which we'll remember as being unlike any other in living memory. A huge amount of people have fallen victim to this wretched disease, and whilst I would never want to trivialise it or speak about this time we've lived through without the respect it deserves, it seems very clear to me that we cannot and will not walk back into the same world we came from. COVID-19 has been described by some as the universe's way of sending us all to our bedrooms, to think about what we've done to our planet and where the future will be headed if we don't change our course. Whether or not you agree with the sentiment of that, what is certain is that this unforeseen world event has granted us a rare glimpse into our dependency on a myriad of systems which govern our lives. Be it industrialization, consumerism, globalization or access to healthcare. And for the first time in recent history, the world has been united against a common enemy, giving us a chance to recognize the divisions which have come to polarize our society. A window of opportunity opened up, and as we've looked through it, perhaps we've had a chance to see ourselves as a whole again. More than anything, I think we'll remember this as a time when we were able to question what was and is truly essential. It was a time when our health, both mental and physical, became our number one priority, 
When we listened to scientists over political leaders. When air pollution cleared up. When we chose bikes instead of cars and camping trips instead of international flights. It was a time when we took a greater interest in finding fresh produce and became more conscious in limiting how much waste we produce. We took the time to listen to our bodies, to rest, work and exercise at our own pace. Yes, it's been bleak, but in years to come, I think we may find that many children will remember this time as being a happy one because their mums and dads were home, drawing or making things with them, reading stories and never too busy to play games. And perhaps parents will fondly reminisce about having had a chance to stop and be present with their families. We've all been forced to think outside the box and have found ourselves learning new skills, dreaming up new things and reinventing old ways. Some of us were still, some of us danced, some of us got to know our demons. And whilst all of us have suffered to various extents, we helped each other through it. New connections were made with old friends. And technology, originally invented for business meetings, found more meaningful use for human interconnectivity. Whilst many multinationals hastily tried to adapt, we saw a rise in small businesses, because entrepreneurs had a moment of stillness and creativity. The parks in our cities became bustling playgrounds for dogs and children and places for people to enjoy a socially distanced moment of connection with a friend or a stranger. And for all the chaos, there was a renewed appreciation of our communities and responsibility taken for the needs of the most vulnerable in our society. Around the time of the first UK lockdown in April, the way many people hunkered down and made good with whatever supplies they could find was said to remind older generations of what was known as the Blitz spirit back in the times of World War II. And perhaps the most remarkable example of the way the country came together during those months was Clap for Carers. Beginning in March and lasting until the end of May, the gesture was originally started by Anne-Marie Plass, a Dutch expat living in London, who was inspired by a similar campaign back home in the Netherlands. At exactly 8pm each Thursday evening, Britons would come to their front steps, balconies or windowsills to show their appreciation of NHS staff, carers and key workers by means of clapping, cheering or banging the nearest item of kitchenware they had at their disposal. When the first clap happened, I was living near Great Ormond Street Hospital and happened to be passing by the front entrance on my evening walk. Once I'd twigged what the clapping was for, I felt a kind of out-of-body surge of emotion comparable only to how I imagine millions of people feel watching England win at home. A feverish sense of national spirit, definitely heightened by the sight of an ambulance doing multiple laps up and down the street with its siren blaring. As the weeks of lockdown slowly passed by, our 8pm clap on a Thursday evening became a sort of ritualistic reminder of the people working round the clock while we slept or worked from our couches and served as a lifeline of hope to many millions of us during those long months. As it happens, shortly after recording my interview with this week's guest, I myself tested positive for coronavirus and there's a couple of different reasons why I decided to stay quiet. Firstly, I would never want to add to the notion that some are more deserving of sympathy than others. We've all suffered from this pandemic in different ways, whether our home lives have been thrown into disarray, losing our livelihoods, jobs, or worse still, our loved ones. We've each found different coping mechanisms this year, and while some have been very public about them, others have been private, and I don't believe in reinforcing the idea that there's a right or wrong way to cope, because there isn't. Secondly, I had a migraine for two weeks and lost my sense of taste and smell completely. 
The isolation of self-confinement and deprivation of human touch isn't an easy thing and in itself has become something of a universal experience at this point. But as anyone who's had the virus will know, losing two more of your senses definitely pushes that slightly fraught sense of alienation to a whole new level. And it's not something which is easy to talk openly about. Having said that, I did have the immense fortune of being part of a community of friends who went out of their way to check up on me and bring me supplies. And so, if for no other reason, I'd like to say thank you to them for the very sort of warmth we've been seeing so much of around the world beneath this dark cloud. Your kindness won't be forgotten once all of this is blown away. When Anirin Bevin, then health minister, founded the National Health Service shortly after the end of the Second World War, it was established on three core principles. That it meets the needs of everyone, that it be free at the point of delivery, and that it be based on clinical need, not ability to pay. Today, the NHS is the fifth largest employer in the world, with a staggering 1.1 million full-time employees, sitting only slightly behind the likes of McDonald's, Walmart and the US Department of Defence. And in a decade which has seen the nation split down the middle as a result of toxic political division, the NHS remains an example to countries around the world, as a true reminder of what Britain can be at our best. In Adam Kay's best-selling book, This Is Going To Hurt, based on secret diary entries from his time as a junior doctor, the author writes, If you were born in this country, the chances are that the NHS delivered you, and one day they'll zip you up in a body bag, but not before they've done everything that medical science will allow to keep you on the road. From cradle to grave, just like your man Bevan promised back in 1948. 72 years later, the NHS continues to carry out that promise day in, day out. But with a steeply rising and ageing population, and having had to weather several storms of austerity, the swinging axe is sadly never far away. In July 2018, along with tens of thousands of others, I attended a huge march through London to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the NHS. On the way there, I had my ear chewed off by a disgruntled black cab driver who decided to interrogate me about what money tree I expected the government to find the additional £8 billion growing on which the NHS was then asking for. In truth, I think he was more angry at the roads being blocked, because at that time it was incredibly well publicised that around £205 billion was being put aside for Trident, our nefarious nuclear defence programme that no one asked for. And fast forward two years, it's been estimated that HS2, that top-of-the-line train set linking London to the north, could now cost taxpayers up to £106 billion. Like so many of the marches I attended that year, the atmosphere was incredible. But what set this one apart was how notably different the demographic was. Of course, there was a lot of the usual faces, the old guard socialists and labour unions, but overwhelmingly, I found myself surrounded by people in their 70s, 80s and even 90s, many of whom remembered a time before nationalised healthcare and who shared vivid memories across networks of news reports that day. Whereas hospitals summon a sense of fear or dread in many people, my experience is a bit different. I was born with a spinal disability and spent so much time on wards growing up that they became a sort of second home to me and even inspired the first song that I wrote, Little Bag of Hair. Over the years, I've come to see NHS nurses and doctors as our guardian angels, exactly as portrayed in Danny Boyle's monumental opening ceremony at the London 2012 Olympics. 
but on a more recent occasion, in June of 2019, I was in hospital having some surgery, which happened to coincide with then-President Trump's visit to the UK, and watched the televised news conference from my bed, in which he declared that the NHS would undoubtedly be on the table in post-Brexit transatlantic trade deals. It gave me the chills. I remember looking round at the other patients on the ward, many of whom had chronic health conditions or were elderly and quite alone, and felt enraged to think that if it came to our country, these would likely be the very first people to fall through the cracks of a privatised social care system. And as someone who spent time in hospitals on both sides of the Atlantic, I can't shout loudly enough about how inconceivably damaging the Americanization of the National Health Service would be. Receiving visits from the band in hospital that week, they encouraged me to channel my fears into some music, which would eventually go on to form the centrepiece of our new album. When that song appeared, it was perhaps the first moment of recognition that we were writing an album of protest songs. And when the time came to present it to the world, we decided to premiere the track exclusively around different hospital radio stations in the UK, bringing the song back to the magnificent places which inspired it. It was more fulfilling than any tour we've ever done. I believe music is the ultimate painkiller and in a way can reach places deep within us that can't be reached by medicine alone. It can lift us out of whatever predicament we're in and be a friend in our loneliest hour and nowhere is that needed as much as when you're lying in a hospital bed. So it felt right to release the song on the 71st anniversary of the creation of the NHS as an expression of our gratitude. The name of that song was Hospital Radio and you'll get a chance to hear it at the end of this podcast episode. Captain Sir Thomas More, popularly known as Captain Tom, is a figure whose name will forever be synonymous with what the world has gone through this year. A former British Army officer, Sir Tom served in India and in Western Burma, now Myanmar, during the Second World War as a member of the Royal Armoured Corps, where he was tasked with training army motorcyclists. His fascination with motorbikes continued after the war and saw him race competitively, winning an assortment of trophies and medals over the years. Fast forward to April this year, soon to be centenarian, Sir Tom was encouraged by his family to launch a fundraising campaign in aid of frontline workers during COVID-19 as part of NHS charities together. Branding his endeavour Tom's 100th birthday walk for the NHS, the captain aimed to raise £1,000 by completing 125-metre laps of his garden. After BBC Radio caught on to his efforts, the campaign went viral and contributions rose exponentially, at first to £5,000 and then to £500,000 as more people around the world became involved. Insisting he'd soldier on and attempt a second hundred laps, by the time the campaign closed on his 100th birthday, the final amount raised totaled at just under £33 million, earning him a place in the Guinness Book of Records as having raised the largest ever sum of money in an individual charity walk. Later the same month, he earned his second Guinness World Record as the oldest person to score a number one single in the UK charts, with his cover version of You'll Never Walk Alone. Captain Tom's achievement inspired countless others in the UK, as well as around the world, to take on similar fundraising challenges in aid of health charities fighting coronavirus. On the 17th of July, Captain Tom Moore received his knighthood from the Queen at Buckingham Palace, in just one of many accolades made to a man who showed us what he believed was worth fighting for, and just what a powerful force the human spirit can be. 
Another person using their voice to champion health workers and fly the flag for the NHS is the person I'm about to speak to. Our guest on today's episode of Things Worth Fighting For began her career as a current affairs journalist before retraining to become a palliative doctor in end-of-life care. Alongside her work in medicine, she's also a Sunday Times best-selling author, with her writing often appearing in The Independent, The Guardian and The New York Times. Dr. Rachel Clark. In April 2016, an image which received a great deal of news coverage featured Rachel and a fellow NHS colleague camped outside the Department of Health in Whitehall in efforts to take then Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt's task over what became known as his seven-day media tirade against junior doctor contracts. I was delighted to learn that ruffling the feathers of authority was nothing new to Rachel. As a child, she led her own sit-down protest against her school teachers, displaying early signs of a strong sense of leadership and belief in equal opportunity for all, regardless of privilege, which sits at the core of what she'd go on to advocate for as a junior doctor. My conversation with Rachel took place remotely back in September of this year, as she and her many colleagues in the NHS were gathering their breath for the second lockdown and the long winter ahead. I felt deep admiration for Rachel, and listening to her speak, the respect she has for her patients just rings so clearly in her voice. I hope you enjoy our conversation and I'll meet you on the other side. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Look, fantastic. It's, it's so brilliant to have you here with us on the podcast. I've spent the past couple of weeks reading both your books, it's been a roller coaster of highs, lows, lumps in my throat and everything in between. For some of our listeners who haven't come across your brilliant work yet, you're a palliative care doctor, which means you look after patients at the end of their lives. But before you trained to be a doctor in, uh, in medical school, you worked as a journalist in television. Do you think it was there that you found your passion for storytelling? I think even before there, actually, I came from a medical family. So my dad was a doctor, my mum was a nurse, and then my grandparents as well, similarly. And I used to just love my dad telling me these amazing stories about his patients. And he was a, a GP back in the day when he'd kind of disappear in the middle of the night and someone would be giving birth on their sofa and he'd go off and sort things out. And 
And I just hung on his every word. And then I think when, as you get older, as you go into your teenage years, I just started to see how powerful words could be. And I realized that not only could you change things with words, but words were so powerful, government states would try and shut them down and suppress them. And and I grew up remembering um, the democracy protests in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, where a a man in shirt sleeves stood in front of a long line of, of tanks and brought them literally to a standstill in front of the world's press. And I thought, wow, that is the power of words. You can write up that story and you can potentially change the world. So I think I always saw stories as, on the one hand, just wonderful, amazing things in their own right, but also really powerful. And in medicine, people's stories are, 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 I think, at the heart of it too. I mean, yeah, as a songwriter, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, in 2018, I think it was, you gave a TED Talk a huge honour and a very deserved one because it was brilliant. In your talk, you gave a quote by Philip Pullman about the importance of storytelling. You said, after nourishment, shelter and companionship, stories are the things that we need most in the world. What were the stories that as a doctor you felt compelled to tell? Well, I think that any doctor is in a privileged position in society. So if you're a doctor, you are well-educated, you've got status, you've got a certain amount of power, and you are well-paid. So you're very lucky, you've got all those privileges. And I always went into medicine believing that I wanted to use those privileges in a way as a form of advocacy. So I don't see speaking out and trying to tell people's stories as any different to how I practice day to day on a hospital ward. I think it's all one and the same thing. It's all about trying to help people and using the skills you have. And I think I was always drawn to, right right from day one of medical school, to the patients who, who seemed to be the most vulnerable. I think all patients are vulnerable. You're in a power relationship with doctors and nurses and hospitals the moment you set foot in them. But some patients are particularly vulnerable, for instance, those who are very elderly or who may have a disability or or mental health conditions, for instance. And there are so many examples of those groups of patients who are particularly voiceless. And I wanted to try and tell those stories that normally in the kind of busy, loud, cut and thrust of modern life, just don't get heard. And in particular, I was very, very interested in palliative medicine, because if you're approaching the end of your life, then you often really don't have a voice. You're very tired. You're you're dealing with the enormity of, of knowing you have a terminal illness. And there may be lots and lots of people speaking on your behalf, and you don't have the energy, maybe, to advocate for yourself. And I saw lots of examples of patients who who maybe were not being treated anything like as, as well as they should have been because no one was hearing them. And, and I wanted to work in a, a branch of medicine where I could tell those stories and, and most importantly, listen to those stories. Talking about stories, when you were working television in the era of Tony Blair's New Labour, you were commissioned to make a film for Channel 4 about the NHS, in particular the 
the way that treatments were offered based on a postcode lottery system. What was your experience like making that film? And was part of the process formative in your decision to pursue medical training later on? Yes, it absolutely was. So so this was way back in the early days of um, Tony Blair's first premiership. And so we had come out from many years of conservative governments under which NHS funding per head had been really cut back. And back in those days, it's hard to believe it, but people would literally lie on trolleys and corridors not for 24 hours, for 48 hours. You Mm. could be on a trolley for two days and regularly in hospitals up and down the country, patients would die on those trolleys. It, It was absolutely horrific. And at the same time, all the treatments that today we would think we must at all costs try and preserve, for instance, cancer treatments, chemotherapy, they were being rationed as well. And and I remember there was one particular interview I conducted with the widow of a man who had died from cancer. And he used to go every day to his hospital, hoping he might get that latest dose of his chemotherapy. Mm. And all the patients would turn up and there were never enough slots for all of them. And a nurse would go round, and she would choose the small number of patients who were lucky enough that day to get their chemotherapy and all the other patients got sent home again knowing that their chances of dying were increased if they didn't get that chemotherapy and when I heard that story I I had never heard anything like that in my life And, and listening to this woman describe that experience and how completely and utterly erased she and her husband felt like that they felt as though they had been cast into a rubbish bin no one in society cared about them they couldn't possibly care about his life if they were allowing that to happen that made me really deeply deeply angry and I was already thinking about retraining as a doctor because I think I'd always I'd always loved it I made a mistake not doing it first time round but hearing that experience just made me think I want I want to do this it's important that I don't think there's anything more important than working in a job where you have people's lives in your hands literally and you can do something to try and make things better in the NHS and so I think it all came together I know you also travelled to the Republic of Congo in 2003 to film a news report on the civil war there at that time. And you wrote very vividly about your very harrowing um, experiences there. Do you think, in a way, that some of what you witnessed as a documentary maker primed you for the challenges that you've gone on to face in medicine and in healthcare? Yes, I, I do, definitely. So I went to a particular part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the the civil war there was raging at its most extreme. Um, Look, I'm not a war correspondent or anything. I've never been anywhere like that before. And I had to go off and go on an SAS training course to learn how to cope (laughs) with hostile environments. Um, So I was very, very scared. That sounds like a life goal for many people. (laughs) Yeah, it was actually, I I mean, you probably shouldn't say this, but it was really good fun. You got to commando crawl through mud, but you, you learned things like how to distinguish um, the sound of a bullet moving away from you to the sound of a bullet coming towards you. And we actually came under fire at one stage in that expedition. And I remember thinking, oh my God, 
that's a different sound. That's what I was taught in my training course wow. um, as the bullets came our way. But that trip was unimaginably horrific in some ways. So the there were competing um, militia warlords. Um, they all uh, recruited child soldiers, just took them from their families. Rape was used as a weapon of war. Children, women, men were being macheted. They were having their limbs chopped off. There was a Médecins Sans Frontières hospital that was filled with these devastating injuries. And I think on the one hand, it was incredibly painful to see all of that. But on another, myself and, and the reporter and, and my cameraman, we just got on with it. There was absolutely no way we were going to indulge our own emotional responses, really. How could we do that? Because we were walking in and we were going to walk out again and the local population were, were living in this hellish situation. So we, we we were really steely and just got on with the job. And for six weeks, we we documented all of this and in the end, some of our footage was used at the International Criminal Court of Justice to prosecute one of those warlords. And I think I'm, I'm incredibly proud of that. Mm. But I think in a strange way, unwittingly, it, it taught me something that was very important when I then went into the NHS, which was how to suppress all of your weakness in a way and your emotions and get on with a very daunting job that you have to do well for the sake of other people. And that might sound like a, a bit of a, an exaggeration, a bit hyperbolic, but when I started out as a very junior doctor, the, the wards where I worked were very understaffed and you were kind of plunged into this world where someone would be having a cardiac arrest and you had to figure out what to do. And very little about medical school in, in, in those days really prepared you for that. And so the levels of fear were through the roof. You were sort of screaming, I'm out of my depth, I'm out of my depth, I don't know what to do. And I think that that experience in Congo, bizarrely, was a kind of preparation because in exactly the same way, I was so beyond my comfort zone out there in the middle of a civil war. But we got on with it because we we wanted to, we had to, we wanted to tell those stories. I'm not recommending everyone has a um, a placement in a in a war zone as part of medical no. school. But in a way, I suppose what that perhaps taught you was the necessity of developing a kind of emotional armour for these situations. But very much so. And I, and I think it's very unfortunate that actually medical school does not necessarily teach that as well as it should in, in my view. So in medical school, famously, you spend your five or six years learning about three million facts. So you learn all these facts about diseases, human physiology, how it goes wrong, how you fix it again. And of course, all of that's incredibly important. You need to have that underpinning of knowledge. But the one thing that I think is very often not taught is that it is emotionally daunting and frightening sometimes being a doctor when you start out you are going to see things you may never have seen in your life before you might see people die you might see people screaming in pain you might have to tell someone they have a terminal illness if you imagine doing any of those things you you, you might quake a little bit and think gosh that's a hard thing to do mm. as a very junior doctor you're just expected to plunge in with that and the doctors who are teaching you and who you you watch around you, they all tend to 
appear completely in command of themselves as though they just take all of this in their stride. So unconsciously, you're being taught the lesson that you need to suppress all that emotion yourself. You need to eradicate that weakness. You need to make yourself hard because that's the only way to confront all of this very daunting um, life and death stuff. And I think there's a real danger in that because if you shut off your emotions as a very young doctor, if you suppress them and make yourself hard and cold, because that's the only way you can get through these very difficult and sometimes frightening situations, there's a real danger that actually a few years down the line, you'll come out of that as a hardened doctor who can only really get through their job by suppressing or denying their natural innate emotional responses. And it's a short step from that to then losing touch with them completely and perhaps being um, maybe not callous, but certainly not as empathetic as we should be. You forget the people who should be at the heart of medicine. Hi there. This is the bit in the podcast where you might normally hear an advert for something. But instead of telling you about Squarespace or creepy magic doorbells, I just want to have a quick word in your ear to tell you about mysteryjetstore.com. The Jet Store is a one-stop shop where you'll find all our newest merch as well as reprints of older items and designs from the archive. We've got tote bags, t-shirts, baseball tees, long sleeves, sweaters and even baby grows for the little indie kids in your life. We also stock a range of collectible items like badges, patches and comics, as well as one-off vinyl releases and limited edition screen print posters, which come signed by myself and the band. All our clothing is 100% fair trade, sweatshop free. And we take great pride in collaborating with independent designers and artists to create one-off items which we want our fans to look great in and feel good about wearing. That's mysteryjetstore.com for all your mystery merch needs. You'll find the address of the store down in the show notes, alongside loads of other links related to topics covered in this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to Dr. Rachel Clark. Your brilliant first book, Your Life in My Hands, came out in July 2017. It was the Sunday Times bestseller, which is incredible for a first book. It covered much ground from your medical training to becoming a junior doctor, working long 70-hour weeks in encountering situations like crash calls and night shifts on intensive care units, which you write very vividly about in the book. Were you conscious at the time that a lot of what you were seeing might make for a compelling book? Uh, no, the, the opposite in a way. When I changed careers and I went to medical school, I made this very deliberate, conscious decision to stop being a journalist. I saw that as an old life. It was history. And I was going to focus all my energies on just learning how to be a a good doctor and just focus on one patient at a time in front of me. And I thought that was really important. I thought there may be conflicts between the two in, in the sense that as a journalist, you're trying to find things out. You're trying to bring stories that you believe are important to to the public domain. Whereas 
patient confidentiality is obviously at the heart of of being a good doctor. So so I just I, I didn't see that there was any way they went together. And then Jeremy Hunt came along, <laughs> the health secretary back in in 2015, and he announced to all of our astonishment and the NHS that he was going to force a new contract onto doctors and change our working patterns. And he used some of these words, we were not professional enough to work at weekends, we saw medicine as a nine to five profession, but we needed to do better for patients and we needed to have a seven day NHS. And at that point, which was so astonishingly hurtful to every single doctor I knew then, the the day that this story broke in the press, the headlines were literally, Hunt goes to war with doctors. Mm. That was the language he himself used. It was so accusatory. I just couldn't believe this. And suddenly, we were all plunged into this horrific fight with the government where he wanted to change our conditions of work. We were arguing We'd love nothing more than a better seven-day NHS, but you can't get that by making the same number of doctors work even harder across seven days than we are already. The only way you can actually have that, rather than just talking about it rhetorically as a kind of government spin, is to pay for more doctors. At that moment, all of my training in, in journalism came to the fore because We felt like we were fighting for patients. We went on strike genuinely because we were horrified by the idea that we were going to be stretched more thinly than we were. We knew that patients would suffer from that. We knew that we wouldn't be able to do it. Most of us, myself included, thought we would quit the NHS if we were asked to work more than we were already. And so I started telling stories, I suppose, then writing articles, giving interviews, talking about what it was like as a junior doctor in the NHS, because we felt as though we were fighting for our lives. We didn't have any option. We were not going to be able to carry on as junior doctors in the NHS if all these changes went ahead. So I went from very consciously putting that past behind me to abruptly finding it was all resurrected and these were skills that mattered because we were suddenly plunged into this horrific fight with the government. Mm. This is very much a podcast about activism, celebrating people who use their platform to fight for social justice. And you did very much that as part of the junior doctor strikes through it was kind of late 15 onwards, wasn't it? 2015 onwards. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You know, I mean, taking to the streets, holding politicians and the government health policy to account. You were among 20,000 doctors that took to the streets against the junior doctor's contract. Were you ever worried about going out on a limb? Did it concern you that there could be a possibility that you'd be putting your job into jeopardy? Or was that not ever really a worry? It absolutely worried me. The NHS does not take dissent or disruption of any kind easily. It's quite notorious for really destroying anybody who becomes a whistleblower. So if you look at the history of the NHS, it's it's littered with examples of doctors, nurses, other individuals who have spoken out against an example of bad practice, something that is harming patients. And instead of their 
trust their institution thanking them for doing that, they've ended up being destroyed and they've ended up leaving the NHS and sometimes being broken by that experience. And I was horribly conscious of that. I think the trust where I then worked took an extremely dim view of me speaking out. I knew that there was a risk I would lose my job doing all of this. And I knew that things might never be the same again. Mm. You know, if you're going on national television and you're looking an interviewer in the eye and you're saying, yes, I believe the health secretary is a liar. That's a very full on thing to say. Mm. But despite it all, I really had no choice. And we all felt like that. We had no choice. We were in a position we felt where we had nothing to lose because conditions were so grim for junior doctors at that time. We were we were working such long hours, covering so many gaps in the rotors, seeing fellow doctors being signed off sick with depression, leaving the NHS because they couldn't cope with it anymore. I think the vast majority of us either knew someone personally or of somebody who ended up taking their own life because conditions were so hellish for some junior doctors that we all felt as though we had nothing to lose. And Mm -hmm. I think that gives you a kind of fearlessness. So I never expected to become an activist who would camp out on the street for 24 hours outside the Department of Health as a protest against the health secretary. I was a mum in her 40s, mum of two kids. That's not typically what you expect to be doing at that stage in your mm. life, but it was absolutely necessary. And I don't and, and I don't regret a second of it. And even if I had lost my job, I would do it all over again because it mattered. In April 2016, I think it was, there was an image which received a great deal of support across the media which featured yourself and a fellow junior doctor outside the Department of Health in Whitehall. It was a striking image, no pun intended. (laughs) Could you speak a little bit about what was behind that particular action and and do you feel it achieved what you set out to do? Yes, so that was the protest I just alluded to where we were coming up to what was going to be the first ever all-out strike of junior doctors in NHS history. So all of us were proposing to go on strike, even junior doctors who worked in A&D, emergency services, for instance. And that was an act of real desperation. None of us ever wanted to strike. We didn't want to desert our patients. But for all of us to do it in that way was a hugely risky thing to undertake, In fact, all of our consultant colleagues, all of the doctors who weren't junior doctors, they they took our place and they did all of the jobs that we would have done when we went on strike. And many, many thousands of them said to us, we want you to do this. We will cover you. Go and do it. Your patients will be safe. But You had their full support. Absolutely. But if we could have possibly avoided it, we all wanted to. And so I came up with this idea that surely, surely Jeremy Hunt would agree to talking, resuming negotiations with us rather than staying silent and watching this strike happen with all the risks that could entail for patients. So 
my idea was a hashtag, time to talk. It's time to talk, Jeremy. We have to talk. It has to be better than not talking and letting this strike happen. And to kind of launch this campaign, myself and a very good friend, Dagan Longsdale, another junior doctor in London, we appeared outside the Department of Health One morning, we set up a trestle table with a big time to talk banner on it. And we explained to the media that we were there to talk to Jeremy Hunt and we would stay there until he talked to us. And if necessary, we would stay there all day and all night until he spoke to us because a dialogue had to be better than striking. And it was really interesting, Blaine, because I was really scared about doing this. I was worried about being arrested Mm. and two policemen, within five minutes came up to us, big burly policemen, and I was sort of in, inwardly quaking in my <laughs> scrubs. And they came up and I thought, God, what are they going to do? Am I going to be arrested at the age of 42 or whatever I was then? And they came up to us and they said to us, we want to tell you something, this is important. You're not breaking any laws. You're absolutely within your rights to be here. And we support you and we want you to stay here as long as you need to Do not let this government do to you what they've done to us. The police are behind you and we will support you. And one of these policemen gave me his mobile phone number and said, if you get into trouble, if anyone tries to move you on, we're here to back you up. Mm. And that meant a lot to me. Um, And we stayed there for 24 hours. Jeremy Hunt wouldn't speak to us. He refused to. Apparently, we we heard from some of the his colleagues in the Department of Health that when it happened, he stood sort of arms folded, looking down at us from a big window in the Department of Health, absolutely incandescent with rage, but wouldn't speak to us. And the strike went ahead. He and you, you brought sleeping bags, is that right? We brought sleeping bags. Yeah, we literally, it was so cold it was absolutely freezing and we had our sleeping bags and 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 our little mats camping mats and we we lay on the pavement in our sleeping bags all night and although we didn't manage to persuade him into opening dialogue again it did achieve something really important it didn't just highlight the issue but I think it gave junior doctors almost a sense of hope. So when we did this that evening, very quickly, the thousands of junior doctors knew we were doing it. And they all started sending us deliveries, little, um, you know, little takeaways and things. And we just, hundreds of pizzas and takeaways were being delivered to the Department of Health. And in the end, we had hundreds of meals that um, some of us, some, some some of our friends went off and donated to homeless shelters so that everybody else could have this food. And there was this kind of eruption of joy is the wrong word, just real fierce delight that we were taking a stand and we were fighting our hardest and we were refusing to lie down and accept this. And it's really easy, I think, to give up and feel hopeless and helpless and say, the world is too big and I have no power, there's nothing I can do. But the moment you give up, you've allowed yourself to be defeated. The moment you you stop speaking out, you've allowed yourself to be silenced. And I don't think we should allow ourselves the luxury of that. I think we should keep speaking, even when it feels hopeless and we worry that our voice is nothing against the great, big, powerful universe. If we allow ourselves to give up, then 
it's game over. And somehow that protest really kindled a lot of fight, I think, in junior doctors in a, in a really good and constructive way. Mm, absolutely. You talked about the hashtag which trended on Twitter. I'm at work, Jeremy. You write about it in the book. You're someone who's very active on social media with a huge following. Do you think that was one of the first examples you saw where this sort of grassroots approach of a hashtag in a way eclipsed the efforts of perhaps even like trade unions and yeah and, and so what have you to, to challenge Hunt's narrative you know you write in the book the smartphone proved to be mightier than the sword. <laughs> yes absolutely I really saw the junior doctor dispute as this 21st century industrial dispute because traditionally you only have two parties in industrial dispute. You have the government and you have the trades union. Mm. But in this dispute, actually, there were three players. So there, there was the BMA, our union, there was the government, and then there were grassroots doctors. And because we inhabit an age of social media, we were able to organise organically and collectively and we were so united and and kind of tightly bound together by pretty much many of the same values are the same opposition to the contract that we were grassroots doctors were a force to be reckoned with and we was I think more agile and more creative and more willing to go out there and take risks than the BMA so the BMA would be behind closed doors conducting negotiations with the government, but we would be out there fighting this kind of grassroots guerrilla campaign. And it was really interesting how dirty the government played and how they tried to smear junior doctors. I mm. mean, they had their own sort of social media tactics and, and, and certainly mainstream media tactics. They would place stories that smeared individual junior doctors in the newspapers. There was once um, a whole piece about um, junior doctors and their champagne lifestyles, and they tried to portray us all as kind of money grabbers. And Jeremy Hunt one day went on BBC Breakfast News, and he talked about the fact that uh, junior doctor overtime was incredibly lucrative. And he said, uh, he said, working at the weekend was colloquially known in the NHS as danger money. Mm. And that was a complete lie. Nobody had ever, ever heard the phrase danger money. It had been made up by him or his advisors, and he kind of set it out there to try and smear doctors. So it was, you had to be really agile to counter that. And I don't know if a, a, a traditional trade union can do that, but we could because we were free agents, really. And we would come up with these hashtags and these campaigns. And we would go out there and we all communicated in secret little WhatsApp groups. And we had little, I mean, literally, we were kind of working night and day in the middle of the night, we'd come up with what our important lines were that we were trying to push in the media. So we, we were all sort of trying to sing from the same hymn sheet. And it was incredibly amateur, but actually very effective. I can remember once doing an interview uh, with John Humphreys on the Today programme on Radio 4, literally in my underwear in <laughs> friend's house where we were frantically trying to get ready for work. She was trying to stop her young children from crying <laughs> on the interview. I mean, it was farcical. Once I did an interview 
um, again, I think it was for Radio 4, in the boys' toilets of my son's school because I had to find somewhere quiet and I quickly ran into the toilets <laughs> to do this interview and walked out in, and found myself face-to-face with his headmaster and had to explain what I was doing in the boys' toilets. So it was completely amateur, but we were desperate and we had nothing to lose. And so we tried and tried and tried, and I think that was really effective. And I, I, I think it really struck a chord with the public because it was really clear that we were doing this authentically with the best intentions. And I think people can always tell when someone's being sincere. Mm. I go to a lot of protests and as many listeners to the podcast will know, I'm a I'm an avid collector of um, placards. At one point, <laughs> yeah. they, they lined my entire wall of my flat. I mean, looking back at some of the messages from that time, you know, too tired to save lives, trust real doctors, not spin doctors, tired doctors make mistakes. I mean, as a member of the public, and I can remember seeing those in the media at the time, you know, you'd have to be pretty heartless not to have felt the passion and the urgency in those messages. You know, looking back with a few years, I suppose, how effective do you think they were in really waking up the government or holding Jeremy to account? It's very interesting because I think, you know, in a way, Jeremy Hunt benefited, I suspect, within his party from being perceived by fellow MPs as the tough, hard Minister of State who was standing up against a trades union. I think you potentially, as a Conservative Secretary of State, get a lot of brownie points for doing that. And I and, and so mm. I think to that audience he perhaps saw a benefit on on being this sort of hardline um, health secretary against the BMA. But at the same time, public opinion was overwhelmingly in support of junior doctors. And he could see that. I spoke to him towards the tail end of the dispute, in fact. And I think he regretted how belligerent he was in how he communicated to to some extent. And interestingly, although in one sense, we absolutely lost the dispute, the contract was imposed upon us um, that we fought so hard to prevent. In another sense, it's an example of losing the battle, but winning the war. I think that the government and the NHS were shocked and quite horrified in some ways by how vociferously we fought against that contract and how desperately we clearly felt about conditions of work and how unsafe they were for patients. And actually, everybody listened to that, including Jeremy Hunt, including the government. And there have been enormous strides since then to try and make working conditions better for junior doctors so that Hopefully never again will juniors be so desperate that they're driven into suicide as a result of unbearable conditions of work. Um, So that's a real positive. And I think another positive is the fact that the genie is out of the bottle now. So until Jeremy Hunt, we were very meek and mild. We didn't speak out. Doctors are people pleasers in some way, you know, we we jump through all our hoops, we take our exams, we get our grade A's, we go to medical school. Mm. Well, boy, oh boy, since 2016, we think of nothing now about speaking out. We're fearless. And a whole generation of doctors has been politicized and vocalized by that experience. And, And if you believe in the NHS being transparent and candid, and everybody speaking out about problems, 
which has to be the right thing for patients, then that's a a wonderful legacy of the dispute, I think. Mm. Four years has passed since the junior doctor strikes. In 2018, after six years as health secretary, Jeremy Hunt was replaced by Matt Hancock, the former culture secretary. He's a man of mixed opinion. He was, he was a great supporter of disability and access in the arts. He was also famous for having hired a private jet to fly back from a climate conference when he was energy minister. He's obviously got a big job on his hands. What, what do you make of him so far? Well, I have to say that Matt Hancock really shows Jeremy Hunt in a good light, despite everything, despite the junior doctor dispute. The one thing I would say about Jeremy Hunt is he was really committed to the job of being health secretary. Now, I would disagree with so many of his tactics, his strategy, particularly the way in which he treated junior doctors. But you can't deny the fact that he threw himself into his brief Mm. and he immersed himself in the NHS. He understood how it worked. He understood the strengths, the problems, and he clearly really cared about patients. So, for instance, he um, really pushed for better understanding and awareness of sepsis as a killer in the NHS. And he was motivated to do that by terrible stories of parents of babies and toddlers whose children died because sepsis was undiagnosed. Mm. Um, so, So love him or loathe him. He was a committed health secretary who understood and worked hard at understanding the intricacies of the NHS. Whereas Matt Hancock, I'm afraid, really does not come across as somebody who is on top of his brief. He is clearly zealous about tech and social media and IT. He clearly believes that in most cases, The way to make things better in the NHS is to take people out of the equation and replace them with a shiny, all-singing, all-dancing app. In fact, only six weeks ago, he announced to the consternation of, of everybody that in future, doctors should not see patients face to face if there was a a, a tech option or a way to see them mediated through tech instead. And I I mention that just because today there seems to have been a a complete reversal on that. And today I've noticed GPs are being bashed in the newspapers for not having enough face-to-face consultations with patients Mm. in, in, in this age of coronavirus. So he is a man who has got very strong opinions on what will make patients safe. And they're usually based around tech. In the pandemic, they tend to be very jazzy and blingy and sort of big headline ideas. You know, we're not just meant to be beefing up our testing at the moment. We're actually going to have a moonshot, as Matt Hancock calls it. We're literally reaching for the moon is our aspiration in COVID testing. And I think doctors take all of that with a very big pinch of salt because we're evidence-based. So we have been taught to uh, uh, suggest management options, treatments on the basis of the evidence on what works and what doesn't work. That's the difference between a quack and a doctor. It's all about evidence. So we want a health secretary who similarly bases their decision making on evidence. But an awful lot of Matt Hancock is about ideas 
that sound good and modern and seductive and soundbitey, but are not actually based on evidence for what works at all. And that's very, very worrying because if you spend NHS money on one pot, then another pot is empty. It doesn't get the money. I just, personally speaking, it's just my own opinion, I just don't know why he feels the need to smile so much in interviews. <laughs> I, I find it really hard to trust anyone that smiles that much. Um, it's a mean I, smile. It's not a nice smile, is it? Yeah. I, well, I, I think I would go one step further, Blaine, and I would say I find it very hard to trust someone who so regularly says things that are patently not true. <laughs> and, and, a, and a really good example of this is um, a couple of months ago, we're obviously at a very stressful point at the moment in, in the pandemic, yes. cases are rising, it's a really daunting time, we're wondering, worried about what's going to happen next. And I think in the back of every doctor's mind, we're thinking about April and May, where we now know tens of thousands of vulnerable residents of, of care homes, whether they were elderly or perhaps people with disabilities, died from coronavirus, despite the fact that the rhetoric from the outset was, we will shield Britain's most vulnerable citizens, we will protect them. And I think the most iniquitous example of Matt Hancock not being honest with the public was when several months after that appalling death toll was revealed, one day he stood up in a press conference and said that he had thrown a protective ring around care homes when he had quite clearly done the exact opposite. Mm. Those residents who had no voice again, we talked earlier about people having a voice, they had no voice, mm. no power, they were forgotten, invisible citizens, and they were thrown to the wolves. And I don't believe there was a doctor in the country who heard Matt Hancock make that claim about a protective ring for those citizens and feel anything other than sickened by it because the opposite was true. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps we'll come on to coronavirus just in a minute. But I mean, in spite of being actually, I was looking this up the other day, the NHS being the, the, the fifth largest employer in the world, in 2017, around the time of the strikes, the NHS was short by 32,000 staff and actually has less doctors per head than most of our neighbouring European countries. Would you say this is due to doctors doing their training and then leaving to become a doctor abroad, for instance, places like Australia and New Zealand? No, I don't think it is that primarily. I think that 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 there's a, an enormous problem with retaining doctors. So it, it's not that people don't want to be doctors. All, all medical school places are hugely oversubscribed um, and um, nursing places are as well. It's that so many people end up leaving and there'll definitely be a, a small minority who want to have an adventure and, you know, go to Australia for a year. And, and, and that's great. That's wonderful experience. Then they come back again and they go back into the NHS but what's much more worrying and, and much more pervasive is people who perhaps have been working for, you know, eight, 10, 12 more years, and they gradually become so ground down by the mm. conditions of work, um, so burned out, that in the end, they reach a point where they think, I can't go on like this, I can't keep on doing the job that I once loved so much, and 
thought I was the luckiest woman in the world to be doing, I can't keep doing it because if I do, I'm just going to fall apart. And everyone's got a breaking point, haven't they? Uh, everyone's got a breaking point. And I, I don't think there is anything more soul destroying than going into a profession like nursing or, or medicine because you want to help people, you want to care for people. So you've, you, you're a, an emotional person. You've got that real strong desire to help people, but you find yourself day after day, you know, in an A and E in winter where everyone's waiting six hours. The the corridors are lined with trolleys. People are shouting at you, sometimes abusing you because they're distressed and frightened, and they can't understand why their mum has been lying on a trolley for six hours. You do that day after day and you try your hardest, you throw everything you've got at your job and you still can't do a good job because the conditions are so overstretched. And in the end, you have a nervous breakdown, you become very callous or you walk away. And that's the problem. It's that everything is so underfunded and so overstretched that people are walking away on their droves. There's a huge issue with um, retaining doctors and nurses, and we're losing some of our most experienced members of staff, all that expertise that they've acquired through years and years of, of working, and they reach the point where they just can't do it anymore. They're too burned out, and that's the problem. And I think the only way you can resolve that is by addressing the conditions of work. You, you, we, we have got to address the understaffing. And, you know, we, we always hear governments assuring us they're going to do that. We've, we'll have five-year plans and 10-year plans for the workforce. But all we've seen over the last decade is endless problems with understaffing. And it's, it's, it's really difficult. It just drives people away. Mm. I mean, we've touched on COVID, obviously. I mean, after a pretty intense five years of political dissonance in Britain. Um, many of us hoped that this decade would see us turning a corner. But then, of course, March came around and the pandemic ground the whole world to an entire stop. As someone working on the front line in a hospice, the stress levels must have been very intense at that time. Very much so. And, and I spent a lot of time um, in the hospital, on the hospital wards as well. I really wanted to, to be where the need was and, and where the patients were suffering from COVID. We heard an awful lot in, in March and April about intensive care and ventilators and how incredibly important it was to have enough beds in intensive care so that we weren't having to ration those ventilators and thank goodness we we never had to although we came pretty close but i think actually the vast majority of people who have died from covid were not in intensive care they were either in an ordinary hospital ward so people that i was seeing or they were in a care home or a hospice or in their own homes and it was really really difficult because in my whole history as a doctor, oh, I've been a doctor for 11 years, I, I've never known a, a state of affairs where so many people were coming into the hospital so unwell with the same condition over and over again, and often would be dying so quickly from coronavirus. And that the hardest thing of all was all of the restrictions we had to have in place as infection control measures. So we only were able to allow visitors 
right at the end of life when we judged someone to be close to dying. Mm. All other patients in hospital were not allowed visitors. Uh, you, you were allowed a visitor if you were a woman in labour, you were reaching the end of your life, or you were a child. Basically, that was it. All other patients couldn't have visitors. And then, of course, we were all wearing PPE masks and gowns and gloves. And if you think about that from the point of view of a patient, you, you could come into hospital, be rushed into hospital in an ambulance, and literally from that moment onwards, for the rest of your life, you would never, ever see a human face again mm. because everybody you saw had a mask and probably a visor as well. You never saw a human face again. You just saw pairs of eyes. And that, I think, has haunted all of us because in palliative care especially, you know what really matters at, at the end of life and what matters is is love and human compassion and closeness and, and people helping you feel as though you're not alone. And all of those barriers were just the exact opposite, the most inhumane conditions imaginable. And we found that really devastating. There were times when all of us, I think, broke down, mm. we didn't sleep. I remember one time after the first week where I was seeing patient after patient after patient with COVID, where I just had to pull down by the side of the road in my car and just stop and just cry yeah. by the side of the road because it was so shocking it was just like nothing I'd seen and you can't bring that home to your family so you just have to kind of do it in private um and and when you're at work you just get on doing your job so you can't do it at work either and I think we all felt like that but we tried our best and we we tried so hard to bring humanity and that sense of love to the patients despite everything. So we would sit with them and talk to them and hold their hands and we would use iPads and phones to um, help their families communicate with them. And it's amazing how far a little human contact can go in those conditions. You can, even through a mask, you can convey to someone that they matter to you and you care about them and you're doing their best to them. And that was all we could do. And that's all we tried to do. Mm. I mean, I very unfortunately lost my uncle during lockdown, although not from coronavirus, we were still faced with the incredibly difficult obstacle of not being able to travel to his funeral. The funeral home did an amazing job in, in broadcasting the service and I felt incredibly thankful that that technology was there. So it felt like we were in the room with him. But I think perhaps like many others, I also feel this resentment at the government, not only for how they handled lockdown, but also to permit shops, restaurants and bars to stay open, to keep trading, to keep the money flowing, whilst many families and close friends and relatives aren't able to say goodbye. I mean, do you think, do you think the current government guidelines are fair? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, Blaine, because I think for absolutely everybody this year, it's hard enough to lose a family member, someone you love, but to lose them and not be able to experience any of the normal rituals around grieving and mourning, not be able to say goodbye to them in the way that you want to with a, a big funeral or a wake and everyone coming together and celebrate their life. That's incredibly painful. It's incredibly hard and it makes grieving 
very complicated, incredibly raw and difficult for many people. I think that on the one hand, it's easy with the benefit of hindsight to say, look, we should have done things differently. Yeah. You, you could argue that in the in the heat of the moment, when we were looking at other countries like Italy, who were running out of ventilators and, and intensive care beds and were literally having to ration those beds and say to people, I'll take you, but I won't take you because I haven't got a ventilator for you, even though I could save your life with one. I think when you're facing conditions as extreme as that and everything is happening so quickly, you could argue that it's understandable that some of the decisions that were made were wrong at the time. And I think they undoubtedly were. And we need to be honest about that. However, we're not in that situation at the moment and we haven't been for a long time. And I find it very difficult to justify the fact that lockdown was opened up in ways that were clearly designed to to kickstart the economy. That's obviously a good thing to do, while not actually necessarily taking account of the fact that um, people not being able to gather for a funeral or not being able to visit their granny or their dad in a care home absolutely runs roughshod over the values and instincts that make us human. We are, you know, we we are human beings who are driven by mammal instincts. We're tactile. We want to be close to each other. And I think we've realized for a long time now, for months now, how incredibly painful and harmful some of those restrictions have been. So, Yes, I completely agree that the current situation where you can pretty much do anything you like so long as it has commercial value, but you still can't go and visit a loved one in a care home in in, in many places, that's pretty extraordinary. And I, I, I think even more unforgivable than that for me is the fact that six months down the line, the day that you and I are talking right now, you cannot, for love nor money, get tested for COVID anywhere near your home. So, so right now, people are driving 500 mile round trips, sometimes with a sick baby, a sick child in the back of their car to get a COVID test because there is nowhere within a 250 mile radius of their home where they can get tested. There are doctors and nurses who are literally spending all night clicking and refreshing and refreshing the websites to try and get a test. And they're just told no capacity, no capacity. I think it is utterly unforgivable that a government who has had six months experience of this pandemic has failed to have even a basic level competent testing infrastructure in place. It Mm. is going to cost lives. That is a failure of governance with literally lethal consequences. And I can never forgive that because we do not have to be here. We should and could be like Germany, like South Korea, like all these other countries that have got proper testing in place. Why haven't we? It's an unforgivable failure. Hi there. Sorry to be barging in again. This is the part of the episode which we like to use to signal boost other creators who are doing great things. And this week, I want to tell you about Sportsbanger. Sportsbanger is a subversive design studio come protopunk sportswear label and the brainchild of Johnny Banger, a DJ, rave MC and sportswear fanatic from Colchester who's been called the millennial Malcolm McLaren. 
The son of an NHS mental health nurse, Johnny designed the iconic bootleg t-shirt featuring the NHS logo above a Nike tick, which was an instant hit when it first came out. And when lockdown hit back in April, he brought the design back as a hoodie to raise money for food banks in North London. His grassroots campaign garnered so much support that he founded his own charity, MegaRaid, to deliver huge weekly shipments of fresh juices and food to key workers in hospices and care homes fighting COVID-19. Everything Sports Banger produces has a strong sense of folk art and social commentary about it. And Johnny made the news again in the summer when he invited young people under the age of 16 to customise the letters which Boris sent out to every family in the UK urging people to stay home as a way of articulating their feelings about how the government handled the pandemic. The results were incredible, and the project caught the eye of former Turner Prize-winning artist Jeremy Della, who invited Johnny to exhibit the hundreds of letters at the Foundling Museum in London. I'm going to ask a very simple but difficult question. What is Sports Banger? Um, we work across everything, music, fashion, art. Nothing is done for money here. It's done for art and fun, and to just, you know just headbutt people with our way of looking at things. How did that come to you, that idea of the children making the work? I was down here a lot. We were already sort of active in lockdown, doing a T-shirt for the healthcare workers and stuff. Someone had got a letter through from Boris. Good evening. With one of their T-shirts at the same time. And on Instagram, they put one of these is going in the bin. So I thought, oh, there's something better we can do with this letter. I then put up on Instagram and said, look, if you've received a letter, draw on it and just tell us what you think. That letter was just a joke to me. So I just put it in the hands of the kids and see what they thought of it. But I did give them sort of some themes to go on if they were stuck. Dogs, fruit, world, stay home, earth, good, smile, hands, poo, boobs, rich, poor, run, willy, mega, rave. <laughs> and pretty much all of those subjects got covered. You want to set it on fire? I was just happy to let the kids have a voice. I was watching what you were doing on Instagram with these letters, and I was I, yeah. I was so jealous. I was yeah. so distressed by it. I had to stop following <laughs> you for a while. Yeah. It was just doing my head in, because I just thought, this is the perfect artwork for this moment, really, that yeah. you created or helped create. It did fill me with joy every day. Yeah. Every, you know, every time you get a new one through. It's a good mix of positive ones, sort of supportive ones for the NHS, yeah. and ones which are just completely, you know, tearing down the government. Sort of raging. Yeah. And the, uh, the, 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 the running theme of poo, I mean, that's... It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> There's a great one of a poo with a top hat, which I presume is Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah. Well, I just hope it is, basically. Uh, that Poos and rainbows, basically. Yeah, yeah. Which is like a great combination. Which is, which is how I see this whole situation. That was a sample of designer Johnny Banger speaking to the artist Jeremy Della about the COVID letters, his exhibition at the Foundling Museum in London. Links down in the show notes to order the book, as well as t-shirts from the Sports Banger store, and how to follow Johnny on social media to stay in the loop with his amazing, constantly evolving projects. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to Rachel. Speaking of care homes, you mentioned care homes there. Fast forward to January this year, 2020, 
you brought out your second book, Dear Life. It came out again to rapturous acclaim and it was a bestseller. It's an incredible book. I've been reading it this week. It explores a lot of what you've seen in palliative care. In what I do in music, a lot is said about this sort of second album syndrome. Was there anything about the writing process which you consciously approach differently the second time around? Well, luckily for me, I have what I think of as my proper job, which is which is <laughs> being a doctor. And, and I have always told myself that my proper job is medicine and I have a hobby that's writing. And I, I, I told myself that through writing my first book and my second book. And I, I think I wouldn't have the confidence to write if I didn't say that. So I've never written anything that I haven't really burned to write that hasn't really come from my heart. Mm. So the first book about being a junior doctor and the junior doctor strikes, that was kind of written on a white hot wave of rage. Yeah. It was very therapeutic. And you can feel it. Yeah. <laughs> in the best pos- in the best possible way. <laughs> yeah. And this second book, Dear, Dear Life, is a very different book. It's a much gentler book. It's not a political book at all. Mm. But it was also a necessity for me to write it. I had to write it. And and that's because when I became a palliative care doctor and specialised in palliative medicine, at almost exactly the same time, my, my father, who I, I loved so dearly, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the experience of learning how to be a palliative care doctor coincided with learning how to lose someone you love so desperately. Uh, Dad was was my hero from being a tiny little girl upwards. Mm. And what I discovered as both those things happened uh, simultaneously was that all my training and experience and, and expertise in palliative medicine did not prepare me one bit for what it actually feels like to lose someone you love and to grieve and I thought that that was an incredibly important lesson that I wanted desperately to write about because it matters to be honest about your shortcomings as a doctor and what you discover through your years as a doctor and I naively thought that I understood about what my patients and and their relatives were going through in in a hospice on a palliative care ward because I had a kind of technical expertise in this area, but it didn't prepare me at all. And I also felt as though through that experience, both losing my father and caring for other patients, losing their lives, I was learning every day about what mattered in life, what really, really mattered. Because in a hospice, no one cares about money or power or work. No one ever says, I wish I'd worked harder. They care about the things they love. And usually that's the people around them. And it's other things like the natural world around them, all these simple things that give us the fabric, the joys of our little everyday joys of our lives. And so I felt as though I had this incredible privilege at work of understanding what mattered and I wanted to share it with everybody. So although the second book is reflective and much more gentle, it was still written with this kind of 
white hot fire inside me. I was desperate to write it. It kind of wrote itself. Um, And I'm not sure I could write any other way. It always seems to come from something inside me that I I have to try and express, which I think is probably very lucky as a writer because you're driven to do it. Yeah. I mean, you were speaking about, you know, the close relationship that you had with your father. I'm I'm also very close to my dad. He actually writes with me in the bands. We write songs together. Oh, wow. Um, so we've got this, this um, very strong bond as well. But there's a lovely passage in the book where you talk about taking your dad to the proms to listen to Elgar's Nimrod. Yeah, um, that's right. I So when we knew dad was in the last months of his life... I think all of us, my, my, I have a brother and sister, and the, the three of us independently started to think about little experiences we could arrange that he might love. And we weren't really doing it with any kind of big idea in mind, but we just wanted him to be able to cherish the time he had remaining and really enjoy it. And one of the things dad always used to do when he was young when he was a student was go to uh, listen to classical music he stopped doing it when he he became a busy dad with a busy career but he always used to talk to me about going off to the Royal Albert Hall when he was a student and listening to music and he loved Nimrod this beautiful piece of music so I thought yeah that's what I could do and I booked these tickets not even knowing if he would be alive to to go to the concert, but there happened to be a concert that had Elgar's first symphony and he was alive. He was incredibly frail and I had sort of booked a, a special parking place right next to the hall because he couldn't really walk very far and I'd paid to have an actual box that he could sit in so it would be really soft and upholstered and because he was so thin with his cancer. And we went and listened to this wonderful symphony and it was really beautiful. But at the at the very end, the conductor, um, a very famous conductor called Daniel Barenboim, turned to the audience and he started talking about Brexit. It was a <laughs> One of the many critical points in the Brexit saga, which I, I, can't, I can't remember now, his orchestra was from Germany and he was a, a very avid pro-EU supporter. And he turned to us and talked about how music transcended national boundaries and it spoke to us all, whatever country we were from, whatever language we spoke. And he looked at the audience and he said, and now I'm going to show you how. And then he turned back to the orchestra and they began to play Nimrod. Mm. The first few notes rose up from all the violins and I looked at my dad. It was his favourite piece of music and we both looked at each other with tears in our eyes because it felt like he, dad, a man who was dying unbeknownst to Daniel Barenboim, the conductor, had just been given this gift of Nimrod played in the Albert Hall by this incredible orchestra purely by chance it it wasn't on the concert schedule at all but it was given to him and we just sat with tears streaming down our faces but they were tears of joy and it was magical and I I will never ever as long as I live forget that moment it was precious 
you convey everything you've just said to me in the writing. You know, you, you convey it beautifully. And I think this idea that music can transcend not only political differences and political discords, but also language barriers as well. I, I hadn't thought about it quite in that way as well, but it is so true. Absolutely. And sometimes even in, in the hospice, lots of families will um, sit with their loved one and very often music will be incredibly important. And sometimes I'll go into a room and there'll be jazz playing or there'll be classical music playing. Or once I went in and there was Jimi Hendrix playing very loudly, which, you know, I wouldn't have predicted. Um, But it was great. And the patient was absolutely loving listening to Jimi Hendrix, which was, you know, his favourite music when he was 18. And it's really incredible how music can soothe and speak to people at the end of life when you're so frail and exhausted with illness, you might not even be able to speak, communicate in words. Music, can you can see it having this calming effect on patients and it's absolutely wonderful. And, and sometimes we're so surprised by how important music is for a patient. We, we sometimes look after patients who have very severe brain tumours and I remember once a patient who had been apparently unconscious for a number of days, quite a few days, and her family used to play her favourite music to her, even though there was no obvious response. And one day they played a Madonna song, which was one of her favourite songs, and suddenly she had a very large brain tumour. We thought we'd lost her forever. She opened her eyes and started singing along to Madonna. (laughs) And she hadn't shown any awareness at all for four or five days. It was it was absolutely extraordinary, the kind of thing that you wouldn't believe it if you didn't witness it with your own eyes. And that says something about the power of music, doesn't it? it yeah, it really does. It really does. For some reason that makes me think, so when I was a child, I was born with spina bifida, so I spent a lot of time in hospitals growing up, having all sorts of operations in all various hostels. I've kind of toured most of the hospitals of the southeast. On one particular stay, there was, this is when I was quite young, there was a bed shortage and I was put on a ward with children having treatment for leukaemia. And Mm. I think it was perhaps one of the earliest experiences I can certainly recall of grief and seeing parents overcome with emotion, you know, sitting with their children, undergoing chemo or radiotherapy. It was actually remembering that experience much later on in my life that called upon me to pick up a guitar and it inspired the first song that I wrote. And I, I know you've written about how your time in palliative care has in a way taught you how, you know, death isn't necessarily the end of someone's story, is it? No, that's right. And one of the things we try really hard to um, achieve in in palliative medicine is ensuring that we pay great attention to the way in which someone will live their final days or weeks of life because once that person has died that final period will live on in the minds the memories of the loved ones um, who have become bereaved and so it's incredibly important to try and think about how that final period of time will be. And I think if there's one 
principle that that underlies palliative medicine. It's this idea that it just doesn't matter how much time you have left to live. You may have two decades or two days or even two hours. The time you have left is important and you are important. You matter. You mean something. You are a human being with value. And that is never taken away, no matter how long you have left to live. So it's our job in palliative medicine to try and enable patients to live the time they have left, however short, just as fully and richly as they possibly can, despite their illness. So it's not just about managing symptoms, helping a patient get their pain under control, for instance. It's about really living what matters to you and how can we help you achieve that. And so a lot of things that would be very unconventional in a, in a typical hospital, uh, we think nothing of. So we have a really fantastically well-stocked drinks trolley. If somebody wants to feel the fresh air on their cheek, we'll just wheel their bed, their hospital bed, right outside into the gardens. We want pets to come in. If people have pets, that's absolutely great. They can snuggle up with their pets in their beds. All of those things, just just so important. There's a beautiful story you speak about in the book where one of your patients had been a farmer and you brought his <laughs> prized bull onto the grounds <laughs> of the care home, which is incredible. Yes, although at, that was actually on hospital grounds. The the hospice was was on hospital grounds, and so it probably broke quite a lot of uh, NHS health and safety rules. But you know, why not bring a tractor and a trailer and a prize winning bull onto the premises? Okay. <laughs> because actually, if that's the thing that someone who only has a few days left to live wants to do or see more than anything then that's what we should be doing. And there should be a lot more of that in the NHS, in my view. Mm. In the book, you describe death and dying as life's biggest taboo. Why do you think it is that something is so universal in a way as our own mortality, this, this destination that we all share, is still so difficult for us to really openly talk about? Well, some palliative care doctors and kind of commentators in the media will talk about this question as though it's perfectly straightforward to come to terms with the fact that we're mortal. You know, it happens to all of us. It's the one thing that's guaranteed. So for heaven's sake, just brace up and and just accept the fact that it's natural. We're all going to die. And I've always felt as though that's not a very helpful attitude mm. because something can happen to each and every one of us and it can still be momentous and, and and I don't think there is anything more momentous in life than knowing that one day every single thing and every single one every person that you love in this world one way or another you are going to be pulled away from you're going to be separated from Either you're going to die or they're going to die. But one way or another, all these things that you pour your heart, your love and your soul into, you are going to have to leave. And I think it's entirely understandable that we find that difficult. In fact, I think you'd have to be sort of slightly psychopathic not to find that difficult. Mm. If you love something then 
it is going to be painful losing that something or that someone. And the amount of pain, I think, is equal to the amount of love. So the more you love someone, the more it hurts to lose them. The more you love your life and all the things in it, the harder it is to say goodbye to it. And there is something so bittersweet and exquisitely painful about that fact, because what what can you do as a human being with this fact of being mortal and the knowledge we have that we're mortal, that we are going to lose everything we invest in? Well, you can either throw up your hands in despair and, and feel depressed about that, or you can throw yourself into life regardless and you can say, I will love every single scrap of it. I will savour it and live it and celebrate it with gratitude every single step of the way, despite the fact that I will die and I will lose it all. And there is something really extraordinary and beautiful about human beings finding within themselves the capacity to do that. And I I witness that. I'm lucky enough to witness that every single day at work. People losing everything they love, but still finding within themselves the ability to feel gratitude for all the things they have loved in their life. And it is really extraordinary to see people managing to do that But I think it's very hard to do until you're faced with that situation. It's much easier to close your eyes and ears to this sort of ominous fact of your mortality that's there in the edges of your consciousness, because it's hard, it's momentous. Um, So I think talking about it's really good always with taboos. The best way to deal with a taboo is the disinfectant of kind of light and conversation and discussion. I'm not sure we're ever going to make human mortality be something straightforward and simple. To to me, it's just obvious that it isn't, but we have to find a way to live with that because we have no choice. Mm. I know you've said that you understand grief to be the form that love takes when somebody dies. And you've related that back to this beautiful idea of the magic string, this un- this unbreakable bond of love and trust. Could you talk a little bit about magic string? Because it's quite a wonderful story. Yeah, so, um, so magic string is this really beautiful idea in paediatric oncology. So children with cancer, like, like the ones that you saw that time when you were a child on a ward. And One of the things that is very, very daunting for children with cancer is having to have radiotherapy because they go into a room where it's not possible for anyone else to be because um, if they were there with their mum or dad, for instance, then they too would receive the radioactive rays. So they have to be alone and they're alone in a machine. There are sometimes loud noises it's cold, it's clinical, and you're frightened because you're having a treatment. So all of that is very daunting for a child. And sometimes with very young children, they may even have to have a general anaesthetic so they're asleep because otherwise they'd be too frightened to have that experience. But we want to avoid that if we can, because it's always good to avoid having an anaesthetic if possible. So one of the paediatric play specialists in London came up this wonderful idea of magic string. And it's incredibly simple. It's just this beautiful, gorgeous ball of really multicolored string Mm. that changes color all the way through the ball. 
and the child holds the ball of wool and then the thread of the ball is threaded all the way out of the radiotherapy room, under the door and into the hand of their parent. So the little girl or boy knows that they're clutching the magic string and on the other side of this lead-lined door, their mum or their dad are there and they're holding their magic string. And it's really beautiful because it's a narrative thread. It's a story they can tell themselves about being held and loved by their parent that is simultaneously a literal thread. They are literally connected by this magic string and it works wonders. It means that children can clutch their little ball and the ball is a symbol of the love outside the room and it helps them feel calm and get through their radiotherapy. And it's such a beautiful example of something so simple, doesn't cost anything, but just the imagination and the empathy of the play specialist who came up with that has managed to make children's lives better. What a wonderful example of the NHS that is. Absolutely. It really is. Um, I love that story so much. You've shared so much of your story today and we've covered a lot of ground, some of it which some of our listeners may have understandably found slightly difficult or uncomfortable. But like you, I think there's so much about our beloved NHS, which is inspiring and not about goodbyes or attached to suffering. There's something you wrote in Dear Life, which I love. You wrote the NHS is where many of us experience some of our most harrowing, yes, but also joyous, momentous and moving moments of our lives. Do you feel that this is really the the lasting message that you want to leave with your readers? I believe that life is simultaneously extraordinary, astonishing, moving, magnificent, beautiful, heartbreakingly beautiful and also heartbreakingly painful Mm. that the pain coexists with the beauty and suffering has to be a part of life It, it has to be part of life when we are mortal when we all have to die one day and yet if we can find a way of living with that knowledge and hurling ourselves into this gorgeous life that we're lucky enough to have been granted wholeheartedly with everything we have, then each of us can live the most wonderful, finite lives. And if the NHS does anything at all in British society, it is to enable each of us to have as much life, as much goodness and quality and beauty in our lives as is humanly possible without a price tag attached. And the NHS will do that no matter how much money, status, power, voice you have. You do not have to have any of those things. The NHS is there to help you live the best and richest possible life you can. What a wonderful privilege to live in a country that has that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't think of a more powerful note to go on. I uh, completely agree with everything you just said. Just before I leave you, Rachel, I've got to ask you our final question, the final million dollar question, which we ask each of our guests. And that question is, what are the three things that you believe are worth fighting for? Huh. <laughs> I 
believe that one of the most important things to fight for is the underdog, in inverted commas. If you have a form of power or privilege in society, use it to fight for people who are more vulnerable and don't have that privilege. Try and fight for others. And in terms of values, I am an NHS value person Mm. to the core. So I will always fight for treating people with the same dignity and respect and kindness, whatever their background, wherever they're from. And I will try and always conduct myself with compassion Mm. towards other people because I don't think very much matters in life. I think it all boils down to love and that's what matters. Yeah, well, amen to that. Amazing. 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 I just want to say thank you so much for giving us your time. I know our listeners will continue to be inspired by your words and your work and the messages in your work. So yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a really brilliant, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to episode 10 of Things Worth Fighting For, and also to both Captain Sir Tom Moore and Dr. Rachel Clark for their powerful words. Take a look in the show notes for links related to this episode, including how to fight loneliness by supporting the Captain Tom Foundation, where to buy his autobiography, Tomorrow Will Be A Good Day, and order links for both of Rachel's books, which I'm sure will touch you profoundly if you haven't read them already. This is the last episode in this series, across which we've been taking a look over the landscape of social justice from a whole range of different peaks. And in a year which we're unlikely to forget, the spirit of community has felt more important than ever. We've each forged our own unique ways to stay sane, and music, as well as podcasts, films, and the arts in all their many forms, have been a godsend to many of us during these strange times. Our new album, A Billion Heartbeats, is about coming together to call for a fairer world. Although we've missed being able to play the music on stage, witnessing the songs take on different, unforeseen meanings in people's lives has been a humbling thing to see. We feel thankful for having had the opportunity to make this podcast as an accompaniment to the record, and also as a way of slowing things down a little, in a world which moves at such an increasingly fast speed. It's been a place in which I've cherished being able to have long-form conversations with some truly remarkable, inspiring people, many of whom have continued to find channels for their activism throughout the pandemic, and will no doubt continue to do so when the world finds its axis once more. Things Worth Fighting For was brought to you by Acast and produced lovingly by my sonic partner in crime, Mr Matthew Twaits. Cheers, man. As always, I want to say a huge thank you to both Kate Jones and Courtney Aisha Mortimer at UROC for so tirelessly helping to track down all our amazing guests throughout this series. So much goes on behind the scenes whilst making a podcast show, and we couldn't have done it without either of them. And so now, to play you out for the last time, we're going to take a listen to Hospital Radio from our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. Stay safe. Have a great Christmas and don't forget the things that you believe are worth fighting for.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.